y los cruzanos, los privilegiados, los parásitos y los hijos de los parásitos que quieran enarbolar la bandera vergonzosa del crimen y de la traición a la patria, sepan que no se van a enfrentar con señoritos, sepan que se van a enfrentar con hombres. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Midwestern Marks podcast, episode 10. Hopping on to give you a special podcast today um, to update everyone on the events that are going on in Cuba. Um, yeah, we've, we've been getting a lot of uh, feedback, I guess you could say, on, on all our social media pages um, from people who are, are taking the anti-imperialist position um, that, that the U.S. is trying to propagate a color revolution. Um um, propagating uh, opposition in Cuba to try and destabilize the country as they hold the country under an economic embargo uh, and purposefully starve the people to try and turn them against the government. Um, and then there are also people who, who take the other position, who, who side with the U.S. and who side with the, the right-wing opposition in, in wanting to overthrow the government. Uh, so we wanted to come and dig into the details about that a little bit, um, talk about uh, some of the arguments that are being made, some of the narratives that are being put out there. Um, so yeah, uh, it's mostly going to be Carlos because th he's got an expertise in this area. Um, it's his, where he's from. So uh, I'll, I'll let you kick it off then, Carlos. Yeah. Um, first of all, how, how are you doing, Eddie? That's, that's tradition. That's the first thing we always ask. True. I'm good. I was getting fired up today. I am banned from TikTok for seven days for yelling at right-wing Cubans. Um, I, I knew it was going to happen, but I couldn't help myself. And I got a little too feisty. So I got to take a seven day timeout. So I'll be posting on YouTube and Instagram um, until I get banned there. But how are you? Good, good. I was actually, I was talking to one of my friends over in Venezuela, who's uh, uh, one of the revolutionary leaders of, of peace of, and um, we were talking about who is more annoying, the gusaneria of, of Venezuela or, or Cuba. And I don't know, I, at this point, they're both, it's a, it's a tight race, but. Um, it really is. It's tough to say. I mean, yeah. I'm biased because I deal with the Venezuelan ones more. So like, that's what I immediately lean towards, but they're both pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have, uh, uh, the topic of today is, um, it's, it's important that we're doing this because we're, we're continuing a narrative that's being built on what's going on in Cuba. And it's a narrative that does not take into account many factors that have to be taken into account. First of all, it's the historical conditions that have led to this, um, both long-term and short-term, um, the effects of the blockade, the effects of the pandemic, uh, what are the inner workings of the opposition groups and the protest, who's being funded by who, why is there discontent in Cuba? So there's so many different layers to this. And I think that, you know, one of the, the things that pisses me off the most, and this is something that we continuously uh, bring up in our project, um, and I know you do it through TikTok all the time, is that people always, uh, people are anti-imperialist in hindsight, right? But they're not able to ever detect when imperialism is actively going on. And that's what we're trying to do here. Help people realize that imperialism is actively going on right now in Cuba and, and, and show the imperialist forces because what pisses me off the most right now is, is not the gusanos really. Like I expect that from gusanos, right? Uh, you know what a gusano is gonna act like. Um, but what pisses me off is, is people who, when it comes to national politics, that we find ourselves in similar circles, right? We find ourselves in non-contradictory positions with each other, some social Democrats, um, some DSA people, some Trotskyites. Um, so, so these are people that I, you know, maybe wrongly, but I, I would have expected to have a more correct position on this. And um, so there's a lot of layers to unfold today. I don't know uh, where we should start, but um, I think if we try to approach it chronologically, uh, I, I think that might be best. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, we can go at it step by step um, and, and break this down more in depth for people because the U.S. narrative that's going out right now, and, and it happens every time the U.S. is trying to cook up regime change, and it frustrates me every time because like you said, I see these so-called socialists 
um, falling for it again and again. But the narrative is so simplistic. President Biden saying this is a call for freedom, as if that's all that's going on there, as if there's no historic, yeah, historical context in, in economic and political context. And thousands of people in the streets is all you're seeing, um, you know, blocking or protesting shortages. Where are the shortages coming from? You know, um, you won't see that covered in Western media because they don't want you to know. Um, because if you knew, you would understand um, what's actually going on, which is hopefully what, what we're going to be able to break down for people here who are uh, um, who are kind of kind of trapped in the West in this, this very insular corporate media bubble that we're trapped in here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, the first thing to understand a short history, and it's very simplified, but a short history of Cuba. Cuba had been a colony for a few centuries to Europe, different European powers late. The last one was uh, the US through the Platt Amendment. Um, and in those centuries, Cuba's soil was made to only grow tobacco and sugar. And what we know about monocropping is that it affects the soil in such a way as to affect the capacity to have fertile soil for other things beyond those monocropped crops. Right. So Cuba was made like Venezuela was with oil to, to have a, an economy dependent on one or two things. In this case, it's sugar and tobacco. Um, during the time of uh, Batista, who was a U.S. Uh, US um, promoted dictator in Cuba, you have the Cuban Revolution, where different forces uh, from liberal anti-imperialist, uh, well-meaning uh, folks to communists, get involved in the revolution, they have the revolution. Shortly after the revolution, what happens is that the companies that uh, owned most of the resources in Cuba, if not all of them, uh, they begin to be expropriated uh, and they begin to be nationalized. So Cuban soil and resources begin to be used for uh, the needs of Cuban people and not for the profit of American corporations. Um, shortly after, the U.S., of course, uh, brings about the blockade. That's important to note because many people think that the blockade is a result of directly uh, the Cold War battle between the Soviet Union and the U.S., right? I've heard people even say that, oh, the blockade comes about because Cuba was threatening to nuke the U.S., and that's just historically false. The blockade comes about because Cuba takes back the resources of the Cuban land in order to distribute them properly and give them back to the Cuban people. Those are resources that were in the hands of American corporations. So that's the beginning of the blockade. Uh, the thing about the blockade is that it's not as in the old days, it's not just a trade blockade where the, it, it's not just a trade embargo where the country that's doing it is the one that's limited for the other country, right? It's, that's another thing that I've seen in the comments that people misunderstand. It's not the case that Cuba can't just trade with the US. But the fact that the U.S. is the global hegemon, that means that the U.S. is the, the global superpower after World War II, means that uh, they have their hands everywhere. So Cuba is virtually incapable of trading with anybody because if they go trade with someone else that's even not the U.S., the U.S. steps in and then sanctions uh, that other country. And there's consequences to uh, not doing what the U.S. says, right? So the, the blockade is not just a blockade that's US Cuba, it's, a, it's something that relates to the ability that Cuba has to trade with the rest of the world. Yeah, now, and I want people to understand some of the details here too, because I get people saying, oh, you guys are tankies, you're just defending the communist country and you're blaming every single thing on the US. But no, understand that uh, all these global financial institutions and, and global uh, alliances of Western countries like the United Nations, NATO, the IMF, the World Bank, these all were created after World War II. And the purpose of creating these is so the U.S. can have a global financial uh, hegemony and they can strangle off countries. Then there are other tactics like uh, the European countries when Venezuela is trying to pay for their COVID vaccine or when Cuba is trying to pay for their ventilators. These Scandinavian countries block the payments from going into their banks. Um, so people you know, talk about how we blame everything on the U.S., but there are very specific things that the U.S. is doing, like we said, that, that are not um, told at all in these simplified media narratives. Also, the U.S. just has their troops, you know, sitting around Venezuela and they have multiple bases, I believe more than eight uh, military bases stationed in Colombia, just sitting around their border. 
um, blocking uh, Iran tried to send oil tankers um, and, and the U.S. stole them and took them back to Houston. I'm bring, um, we're focusing on Cuba now, but in Venezuela, it's a very similar situation with the sanctions. Um, so, so people underestimate economic warfare and, and the, uh, the amount of economic and, and political and military hegemony that the U.S. has on the global stage. But this has been very carefully crafted so they can do things exactly like what they're doing in Cuba, starve their people out during a pandemic and then try and propagate a color revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's important to make that link, right? Because um, one could say, well, why doesn't Cuba just grow or do the things that they need? Why do they have to trade with other countries? Well, precisely because of the reasons why we mentioned first, right? You have this historical condition where Cuba uh, is made dependent on two crops. And since then, they've been also, uh, the tourist industry has, has been big as well, a uh, big part of their economy. Um, so they're made dependent on these things and then they can't trade them with the rest of the world. I mean, that's horrific, right? Especially in, in the conditions which we live under as global capitalism, uh, uh, dominates every, the existence of every country in the world. No country can exist without being able to trade with other countries. So uh, Cuba finds themselves in a situation that in order to trade things with countries, it has to sell under the market price and buy over the market price in order so that it's worth uh, uh, the consequences that the countries that are willing to be at least courageous enough to trade with Cuba are going to get from the U.S. Um, so you have this condition, and this replicates itself in the dynamic of U.S. and Cuba relations, where the U.S. puts Cuba in a specific condition because of their material attacks on Cuba, and then says, look, look at the condition that Cuba is in. Socialism doesn't work, right? Or Cuba's a dictatorship. Cuba's this, Cuba's that. Um, so as, as far as the historical unfolding, to, to bring it up, uh, what that means in terms of Cuba is that in order for them to thrive, in order for them to not just thrive, but survive, they need someone who's able to trade with them. And this has historically been the alternative to the capitalist economy. Uh, it has been the socialist bloc during the USSR time. Um, so during the first uh, few years, during the first two decades or so of the Cuban revolution, Cuba was thriving, right? Cuba had been able to slash, um, homelessness, uh, they were able to slash prostitution, they were able to slash uh, illiteracy, um, raise the living standards, uh, give people education. So they were able to do all of these great things because they had the ability to trade and have fair trade. Um, the USSR falls, right? And you have a period on the 90s called the special period, which uh, Cuba was literally left alone. There's great speeches from, from Fidel that come from this time that uh, he's mentioning, well, this is where our revolutionary spirit is gonna be tested. A weak people will fold and give up and, and, and submit themselves to imperialism. A strong people will continue to survive. Um, the Cuban revolution uh, uh, stood the test and they survived. And in 98, we have the victory of uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Um, and the establishment of that friendship. And then shortly after we have the unfolding of the pink tide, which creates more friends for Cuba and they're able to survive under conditions that are not like the special period. Um, I think that the best moment in that hike for Cuba was uh, around 2014, where Pope Francis asks Obama to lift the blockade. Uh, Obama agrees and he lifts the blockade. And what ends up happening? Uh, well, in, in a year within that lifting, uh, in 2015, Cuba has the highest GDP in all of Latin America. And this was an economic growth that took part in every sphere of society, right? It's not like GDP in the US, right? Where, you know, it doesn't influence at all working people. This was something that influenced all of society, right? Because um, the growth was then distributed into social programs and, and all sorts of different things. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you want me to stop there? or? Yeah, I can jump in a little bit. Um, what you're talking about there with the USSR is interesting, too, because we know people talk about the USSR as social imperialist or China as social imperialist, not to say every foreign policy decision they made was perfect. But the majority of what the Soviet Union was doing, especially within the UN Security Council, where the first 56 actions of the US and the French and the UK were vetoed by the USSR, to stop the Western countries from invading. Um, the role of the, the USSR on the global stage was to provide a shield to the global South. And Vijay Prashad talks about this 
and Red Star over the third world. And once that falls, um, as we said, and the U.S. has developed this global financial hegemony, um, their ability to use all kinds of warfare, um, but especially economic warfare, is, is really enhanced. And like you said, the pink tide rolls out, and now you've seen the coup of Evo Morales, um, the targeting of Venezuela with sanctions, basically trying to starve out um, a whole continent of people. Um, to stop them from developing themselves so that hopefully our corporations um, can get a hold of their resources. And again, Americans downplay these sanctions like, oh, it's economic warfare, but it's not real warfare. I mean, living in America, you have no conception of what that would even be like, right? Most of our industry is service. We, uh, we produce a lot of food and stuff in, in a very large country, not a small island country, you know, with, with a very mountainous region. Um, but we still import so many goods from around the world, you know, the vast majority of our goods are imported from China. Imagine a country putting a blockade on us and then there are people, you know, protesting to overthrow us. People in the U.S. can't even, our context is so far from that, you know, being in the imperial core, people in the U.S. seem incapable of putting on the shoe on the other foot. And these sanctions are disgusting. Like you said, they, they target countries based on what their major industries are. So they know Cuba can only grow sugar and tobacco. So they're going to block them from, from growing sugar and tobacco when the USSR falls with the hopes of starving their people so then they'll overthrow the government. Venezuela, they know Venezuela is dependent on oil because Rockefeller Standard Oil has been extracting that from their country for hundreds of years for, for maximum profit. And when that industry um, is renationalized and the West is kicked out and it's invested in social programs, they target the oil because they know the oil is what, what um, uh, powers all the other industry in the country. You need oil, you need gas to run tractors and make your people's food. And the purpose of this by the U.S., and not even just the U.S., these Western uh, financial institutions and the Western capitalist bloc in general, is to starve people so that they will overthrow governments that the U.S. doesn't like. Starve the citizenship so that there will be discontent and destabilization um, in the government. This is the tactic from the start, you know, and people downplay economic warfare, not just, you know, compare one to the other, but that's almost worse than invading and occupying a country because you're starving the people who don't even have anything to do with it and then pointing and saying, hey, look what the government's doing. And, and what everyone should be demanding, you know, if these if these right wingers um, actually were interested in the truth, you know, they would be saying lift the embargo then. If socialism doesn't work, lift the embargo. Let them trade. Let them try and build socialism and let's see what happens. And then they say, no, you can't do that. These countries are dictatorships. We have to put the embargo on them. They're dictatorships, so you have to starve their people. Like the people, the country that's starving people in another country, the giant world's largest military starving the small island country because they kicked out our, our, the U.S.-backed dictator, that is the authoritarian, totalitarian country. Um, oh, that's, that's the democracy. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the democratic government. But what's funny is that like it is... Like you said, the, the economic uh, blockade, I mean, the, its sphere of influence is just unimaginable, right? But it's, it's not even limited to an economic blockade, right? That's what's crazy. Throughout these last 60 years, we have seen how many attempts to kill Fidel, right? We have seen how many attempts, uh, military attempts to, to overthrow the Cuban government, the Bay of Pigs. Right now, what, that connects to another thing. Right now, what's going on in Miami is that if you have these uh, Gusano opposition people are getting together in their boats and they're urging the, Cu the, the Cuban government, they're urging the American government um, to get the military to go with them to Cuba, right? They're calling it a peaceful protest, but we know that's BS. So uh, there has been military intervention. Um, there also has been biological intervention, which one of the journalists that has, we've, we've published before, Sam Husseini, he's doing a book on right now, the history of biological intervention in Cuba via the US. Um, there has also been, of course, ideological intervention, interventions in trying to destroy and manipulate the revolutionary and socialistic spirit of the Cuban people. So it's, they, are, they, they throw all of their cards in to try to overthrow the, the, the Cuban government, right? Um, and, and we're talking about the largest superpower in the history of the planet versus a, a really small island. So, um, they used it. The fact that they use this to say that socialism doesn't work, it's so absolutely absurd. 
And, and what's interesting, we're talking about, you know, these are small countries. So it's like, how are their governments and how are their militaries able to fend off the U.S.? We'll look at, at this color revolution attempt in Cuba. What happened? The president didn't send the military. I mean, the police were there and the military were there, but he told the people to hit the streets if you defend the revolution. And the people came out in mass shouting, uh, yo soy Fidel. What happened in Venezuela when the U.S. tried to launch a coup? It was a group of socialist fishermen who caught these goofballs um, from a private security firm in the U.S. Um, it is the people in these countries who have this revolutionary spirit and this anti-imperialist spirit who understand um, what the U.S. is trying to do to them. And, and that's why the U.S. has been unsuccessful so far in overthrowing the Venezuelan um, revolution and the Cuban revolution. It's more to do um, with the loyalty of the people. And, and another example is when Juan Guaido tried to climb the gates of the palace. It wasn't the cops who grabbed him. It was people. They're like, no, get down here. And then the military had to be sent in to save him from the people. Um, so, so the people, uh, like there are, of course, opposition members and, and you know, that that grows at times in Cuba, especially when the embargo, uh, when they're feeling the full effects, like during a special period and now during the pandemic. Um, but the the revolutionary spirit of of their people has been has been strong so far, which is really admirable, and you know makes it more disgusting when you have white guys here in the U.S. saying, "Yeah, overthrow the Cuban government; they're a dictatorship." <laughs> yeah, well, and and the thing about the opposition is that, yeah, I mean, are there people there that are mad about the conditions that Cuba's in and are not conscious enough to realize the role that the American blockade has on that? Of course. But who's the one that plans everything? Who funds it? Who's the one that organizes all of it? All of the opposite, the, the pith of the opposition and the opposition movement is all financed, organized uh, by the US and, and specifically Miami interest, right? The, the Cuban exile community here, which is the one that I mean, Trump, when Trump got elected, his plan for relations with Cuba were the same as Obama's, right? He wanted to keep the blockade uh, uh, lifted. Um, and it was the Cuban exile community in, in Miami and in Florida, the ones that urged him to, to input the blockade and to bring it back. And that has been absolutely crippling. And that has been, and this is why it's important to talk about Venezuela too, right? This is all interconnected. Um, Cuba's best friend in the area has, has been Venezuela, right? So you, you mix uh, bringing back the blockade and intensifying them with doing that to every one of Cuba's friends, specifically Venezuela, um, that messes things up, right? And then what do we get a few years after? We get a global pandemic. Um, and, and, and guess who showed up at the Capitol riots? All these CIA-backed groups, um, including the right-wing Cubans and the Venezuelan opposition, um, among the Iranian monarchists, uh, uh, Falun Gong in China, all these insane right-wing-backed groups who probably wouldn't even exist anymore if it weren't for the fact that they're being propped up and funded by the CIA. So these are extreme, extreme, uh, extreme groups. And, and when the capital riots happened, liberal media treated it with extreme hyperbole, not to say it wasn't a big deal, um, but acting like this was the working class, right? Acting like, oh, these are these crazy working class Trump supporters. When all the demographics show us that it was CIA-backed groups, like these Miami Cubans who are calling for the U.S. to invade Cuba, um, and, and these Venezuelan opposition members. Peacefully. Uh, what? Peacefully. Peacefully. All right, they're going to go over there uh, with the Coast Guard peacefully. Yeah, Who's, yeah. who's going to talk? <laughs> so... the. You have this context of the Trump administration bringing back pre-Obama policies in terms of blockade, and then you have the pandemic, right? Which, of course, as the U.S. did with Iran, with Venezuela, with Cuba, and with every other country that does not submit the U.S. interest, um, they have exploited the pandemic to make these conditions worse, right? Through, uh, I mean, uh, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, Cuba was lacking in ventilators and they wanted to do a trade of, uh, for ventilators with one of the, um, well, I think it was Norway or something. And the U.S. blocked that. Like right now, Cuba has five vaccines that they have developed, one that just got approved, another one that is in the process of being approved. But what can't they get? They can't get syringes, right? You have people asking, well, why don't they just produce them on their own? Well, it takes raw materials and instruments that Cuba, again, can't get. Why? Because of the goddamn blockade. So um, it's, it's, 
it's criminal, it's inhumane, it's illegal. That's another thing we haven't mentioned. Uh, the whole world literally voted against it, with the exception of the U.S. and Israel. Um, so it's what does that tell you? What does that tell you about the embargo, people? If if you are backing the opposition right now and this color revolution, you are on the same side as the United States and Israel. Congrats. Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 been horrific. And one of the things that that always comes to mind is, well, if in one year of having the blockade lifted, Cuba was able to develop to the point of having the highest GDP in Latin America. How much growth has the U.S. not allowed Cuba to have because of that blockade? Right. Where would Cuba be now if these last 60 years uh, they would have been able to develop socialism peacefully? Right. That's something that doesn't come to people's minds. But um, the fact of the matter is that if you have the largest empire in human history using all tools they can to overthrow this Cuban government, the fact that they even still exist with uh, with with a fervent uh, spirit of socialism is a heroic victory. Like people love to point and look at the condition that Cuba's in, but the fact that they're even existing is is a David and Goliath sort of sort of victory. Um, and and during the pandemic, their one resource that the U.S. can't block their doctors were exported all around the world, and and you know they're trying to give them the Nobel Peace Prize now. Yep. So as the U.S. is blocking ventilators, Cuba's sending doctors around the world. And why are why do they have so many doctors? Well, I mean the U.S. can't block them from building schools, right? They can't build them, or they can't, or I mean they can, <laughs> they can uh, stop them from building them quickly. Um, but they mm -hmm. can't stop Cubans from educating people in in medicine. So that's what they've done. They've trained up all these doctors to not only treat the rural areas in Cuba, um, but to show goodwill towards countries all around the world. And, and the U.S. has labeled these doctors as terrorists, being forced to to help people by an authoritarian government, whatever that means yeah well yeah they labeled the cuban state as a terrorist state um uh and and yeah cuba's the country that produces the most doctors uh per capita uh, but to get closer to what has led to the events of the last uh couple of days so you have the situation blockade uh pandemic uh, and, and again, these are situations that have affected every government in the world, with the exception of, of China, which is just, they're on another league. Um, <laughs> you, you have these two conditions, uh, which are objectively making life in Cuba hard, right? Um, and with that, you have a funded opposition that when it mixes with this other elements, uh, with these other elements, they work as a yeast uh, for protests. So, um, there's always been protests by the opposition in Cuba. What makes this one special is that we haven't seen them this big since the special period. Um, but again, when do we see the protests get big? When the conditions get bad? When do the conditions get bad? When you mix these different elements, the Soviet Union falls and the blockade, right? Or now it's the pandemic and the blockade, right? So um, another important thing uh, to note is that Part of the protests or part of the reasons why I've been seeing people say that uh, people are driven to protest is because of the COVID numbers are, are going up in Cuba. Um, and that also has a few factors. We already mentioned the fact that they don't have syringes to be giving out the vaccines um, and the few vaccines that they, the few syringes that they do have to be given out the, uh, to give out the vaccines have mostly been going to the tourist industry. Why is that? Well, because the blockade, again, doesn't allow them to trade the things that they can't do. And their tourist industry is very big. The pandemic has made them close out for, for quite a bit of time and they have to open up in order to, to survive. I think the GDP uh, took a 16% uh, dip this it's year a in Cuba. So. Sorry. Yeah, I just want to say like that might sound again like some people, you know, you're just making an excuse blaming everything on the blockade. No, like tourism has really changed things in Cuba, like opening up uh, to tourism has, is a huge portion of their economy and a huge way they've been able to, you know, kind of avoid the blockade is allow people to come in and allow their tourist industry to grow, which you know, people spend money um, when they're there visiting the country. And, and, and that's a huge, huge way that they support themselves. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I've also been been hearing from some Cuban sources that like a lot of the tourism is Russian. Um, a lot of them are not in favor of vaccines, so they don't get the vaccine in their country, um, and uh, that doesn't help the spread of COVID. Um, 
but uh, so we get to the protest and they start erupting uh, yesterday, right? That's it, it starts trending on Twitter and stuff. And one of the things that's important to note is that because of the resources that the opposition has by the fact that they are opposition and, and have sources here in the US uh, that can give them phones and stuff like that, um, a lot of the protests have been intensified. Uh, they have been made to seem larger than they are. Now they, they are historically large. Uh, you don't see these events usually in Cuba. Like I said, you haven't seen them since the special period, but you have pictures of, uh, uh, of, of protest and, and numbers that are blown kind of out of proportion. And a perfect example is a Guardian article that used a picture of thousands of Cubans, some even going up uh, one of the statues. Um, <laughs> and it ended up being a picture of a few years ago of, uh, uh, I think, a movement, uh, not a movement, uh, a celebration uh, thing. Um, the word is uh, slipping my mind. But um, it was a celebration day event for the 26th of July movement, which is the revolutionary movement that ended up uh, uh, leading the Cuban revolution. So um, we did, we saw that with Venezuela, didn't we? What? Uh, a faked protest? Like fake picture. Yeah, you get like the pro-government uh, pictures of pro-government, -gov uh, not protests, but counter-protests and, and uh, movements. And then you say, oh, no, this is the. Yeah, is it, I mean, it's ridiculous in Venezuela because like you everyone needs to watch Abby Martin's video, like the vast majority, not the vast majority, but the majority of their media is not like Telesur and the government owned stuff. It's this privately owned thing. And Abby Martin follows the opposition around and they're just like lighting stuff on fire, vandalizing government property, very similar to what we were hearing about with the actions of the opposition in Cuba. And then, the you know, the police or the military are sent out and they, you know. They're provoked and, and the opposition throws fireworks at them and then the police, you know, spray tear gas or whatever. And they're like, oh, and they run away and they film it. And then that gets plastered up on the news everywhere. It's very easy to manufacture an app. You know, you could be like, again, you know, oh, you guys just blame everything on the U.S. Go watch Abby Martin's video right now of her in Venezuela filming the Venezuelan opposition doing this. This is how they do it. And of course they do. Like if you were the United States and the Cuban opposition and you were trying to overthrow the government, like it would make sense to make up these fabricated videos. So that's what they do. It's a good strategy, but it don't fall for it. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's that's part of what we're doing here, like trying to urge people not to fall for, for the BS and not to fall for uh, the propaganda. Um, one of the other things that is done is uh, the, the blowing out of proportion of questionable anecdotal evidence, right? So they'll say a cop did this here, right? And then uh, they blow that out of proportion and say, the police is being repressive all over the place in Cuba. And I mean, I've seen, like about a dozen videos already of uh, protesters uh, going up to the police that have guns and the police not using the guns and uh, just fist fighting with the protester and the protesters kicking the police's ass. I mean, I, what would happen in the U.S. if someone went up to a cop to fight? Um, I don't think the cop would say, yeah, let's handle it like, like men and, and fight with our fists. Um, I'm sure they, they would be shot at, at, at the spot. So um, these are things that the Cuban exile community says, oh, look at what this cop did. But then when it comes to what's done in, in the country that has 4% of the world's population, but 22% of the prison population in the world, um, <laughs> when it comes to what cops do to black people in this country, that's when they look away. And that's when it's like, oh no, just listen to what the cop says. So why don't they listen to what the cops in Cuba say when they tell them, hey, don't raid these government stores that are used to uh, help the Cuban government distribute and ration the little food we have because of the blockade that you and your family members in Miami are promoting. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the not to say like the anecdotal stories are always wrong. Like I know the Communist Party or I mean, the communists in Venezuela are pretty uh, critical of the police and their anecdotal stories like that. Yeah. But, you know. But then keep in mind the context of, of they're trying to keep order in a country where the U.S. is constantly trying to infiltrate them, one. And then two, we're in the U.S., like you said, we have 22% of the world's prison population and we have notoriously racist and classist police force in a, in a prison industrial complex and one of the most militarized police forces in the world. So we're pointing the finger and saying we need to overthrow this dictatorship. And it's like, 
be, be, you know, and their justification is the police force. It's like, okay, we need to then overthrow the U.S. We need to overthrow the Colombian government. We need to overthrow the Haitian government. We need to overthrow every single government in the world that has a police force that has committed an, an overstep of their bounds. I mean, what a ridiculous precedent that sets. But I mean, that's that's because they have no other arguments to fall on except hyperbole and, and anecdote or anecdotes of, of people being killed or or even myths passed down about the violence of Fidel, you know, in the 60s that these people have heard from their grandparents. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I heard once from an ex-girlfriend's grandma that uh, when she was like six years old, Fidel was uh, was uh, in her town and he ripped the earring off of her ear. <laughs> she was talking about how bad of a tyrant he was. <laughs> you just got to laugh at this sort of stuff. Yeah. There's there's a real one when they were when they were in the jungle this actually happened uh they had a little puppy and and che and a handful of guys were hiding from like batista's men and the dog started barking and it was going to give away their position and they had to strangle the puppy so communism <laughs> is when you strangle puppies to death <laughs> oh man but yeah and uh i mean it's it's it's, it's sometimes laughable sometimes it's like uh, you know if it's real it's it's an unfortunate event and i mean there are mistakes none of these places are perfect that's another thing that you know people call us tankies or whatever but we are critical we just think that there's a time and place to be critical right if we were in cuba and in, in the uh, in the pcc we'd say well let's let's see what we can do what has failed how can we overcome these obstacles um and i think those are absolutely fair but when you lend yourself to doing that in a time and place uh, that feeds into imperialist propaganda, look, you might not be conscious that you're being an imperialist tool, but you are, right? That's that's in fact what you're doing. You're aiding the narrative of the American State Department. Um, yeah. You have to take into account the geographical and political aspect of like, where are you? And then the temporal aspect of what is going on right now. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I read Venezuelan analysis every day in, in the in the Venezuelan communists and their grassroots organizers have all these critiques of the government, and these critiques of the revolution, the ways to make it better. But I'm not necessarily like going out and screaming about about that on TikTok about all these flaws of the Venezuelan government, um, because one, I critique them in good faith that I want them to build socialism, um, unlike when I critique the US and I think that they are doing things that are antagonistic to the building of socialism. Um, and then two, I recognize that my country is trying to destroy them. So if I come out as a socialist in the U.S. and say, oh, yeah, I'm a socialist, but I think the U.S. should be allowed to destroy Venezuela or Cuba because their government, uh, because their police force killed one guy, um, <laughs> a couple guys, you know, um, uh, that's you're, you're aiding imperialism. Like right now, um, what you should be doing is, is hopefully what we're doing, breaking down, breaking down the specifics of what's going on. Yeah. And uh, sadly, this happened with uh, uh, with a group of trots. Um, what I heard was that there was um, some Marxist uh, Trotsky academics in Cuba who participated in the protest uh, against the government and uh, they were incarcerated. So what are the trots in the U.S. now doing while well, they're sharing around a letter saying that the Cuban government should free those political prisoners? Right. Um, were they wrong in arresting them? Maybe. But. Uh, what precedes the arrest? Like you, you need to have an awareness that if you're going to go out into the street in Cuba to protest the government, who's going to be with you? Well, to the right and to the left are going to be people who are being paid by the American government um, and people who don't have the best interests of the revolution at heart, people who want to see Cuba return to the Batista days. Um, so if you're a communist in Cuba and you see that there are harsh material conditions, the answer is not going out and protesting. Um, the answer is protesting in a smarter way, um, uh, getting activated in a manner in which you don't lend yourself to working with uh, gusanos and to, to working with people who don't want to see the Cuban government fall. Um, and then seeing that from our perspective, it's like, you know, it's, it's tragic. We don't want a fellow Marxist to be incarcerated and sure, liberate them. But doing it how they're doing it in the moment in which they're doing it. Like what we need right now is for every person of a socialistic mindset, every person that, um, everyone who has a, an ounce of dignity and, and that 
is in favor of human rights to argue for the end of the blockade and to stop feeding into what's aiding this regime change and imperialistic propaganda. Yeah. And I might have sounded a little callous when I said, you know, the government killed a few people like, yeah, I want those trots set free. You know, I think Trotskyists are comrades for sure, you know, um, and their fellow Marxists. But their tradition does have a history of at the worst time siding with the worst people, starting with Trotsky during World War II, when he was arguing that the Soviet Union shouldn't shouldn't enter World War II because the countries that were being destroyed um, by the German or the Nazi beast um, weren't socialist countries. So therefore, it wasn't worth it. They needed to promote permanent revolution like that's a ridiculous idea at a ridiculous time when, you know, very important things need to be done to defeat this um, very malicious enemy uh, who wanted to destroy everything the Soviet Union was trying to build. Um, so just critiquing our fellow comrades, not saying we're glad, you know, they're locked up. Uh, hopefully they are set free. But, you know, be smart about what's going on right now and what the empire is trying to do and what you as someone who calls yourself a socialist are advocating for right now. Um, yeah. And if you make these critiques of the Cuban state, also point out that they're uh, been trapped under an embargo for 70 years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's the, that's the duty of communists, to work within the people and explain to them when there's times that are hard, why times are hard, and what we can do to improve, uh, uh, to improve those situations. And to improve those situations, the answer specifically in Cuba is never um, to go out and join and protest with people from the opposition. So I think that's a grave mistake. And especially for uh, for people who have grown up in the revolution, they should they should have known uh, better and have looked for better ways to um, to, to to look for reform. Right. I'm, I'm sure the party can do things better. Right. Everyone can do things better. Right. And it should be our job as as Marxists and as people who adhere to uh, dialectical materialism to try to see what it is that we can do better in each moment um but that's not how you do it you don't do it by joining in protests with with opposition people yeah um, so and, and as a socialist in the u.s i mean that's how you're going to spend your time you know what is what is cuba and venezuela and the the struggle for socialism globally need more than anything else uh, revolutions and movements for socialism within the imperial core, uh, especially the United States, within these countries who are choking off Cuba and Venezuela. So if you're an American socialist, maybe instead of getting on Twitter um, six hours a day and tweeting SOS Cuba, um, organize, organize your community so we can overthrow our horrendous dictatorship that starves people with our tax dollars, uh, rather than going um, with a group of right-wing Cubans and, and demanding that more starvation happens. Um, because you heard on Fox News that that Cuba's government's a dictatorship. I'm getting a little angry, but it's like we know if there was a revolution, like think if there was um, a revolution or a, or a movement towards socialism in the U.S. Or even, you know, if we were able to take some kind of state power and have a sort of Bolivarian revolution similar to, to what Venezuela had. The amount of relief that would be pulled off of these countries, like we said, when Cuba's GDP shot up to the highest um, in Latin America, uh, when the US lifted the blockade would be incredible. As you said, think of the amount of development that has been halted, you know, the amount of people that could have been brought out of poverty. Um, and, and that all goes away. Um, if we can actually have a real left wing movement that gains working class power in the United States. So let's put our energy there instead of right wing protests with Miami Cubans. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, and I think just the, the last factor that I think played into this uh, is is a cultural element, which is uh, which intensified the economic element of the suppression of the Cuban economy and putting in the conditions in which it's in. Um, but it's musicians. Um, in the last few years, we've had a lot of uh, Cuban reggaeton artists um, speak out against the revolution. And these are musicians that uh, during the big first 10, 15 years of their career, they tried to stay neutral. Um, but what the exile community in Miami does is that if a big event comes up in a clash, right, and they don't speak out against the Cuban government, they cancel their events. Um, so uh, these Cuban musicians are forced into a position of picking a side. Um, and you have the dynamic between the social ethic that you were raised in because um, again, these musicians are products of the revolution. They weren't raised you know, in, in a vacuum. Um, the social ethic of your people and, and of the revolution 
versus the individualistic mindset of what you can benefit from by moving to the U.S. and selling tickets to a crowd of, you know, 20,000 Miami exile, whatever, right? So um, what has happened is that the leading uh, artists that 10 years ago were neutral, now they're making songs against uh, the Cuban people. And to some extent, like music moves, right? Uh, music moves people. It, it, it gets them emotional. And, and again, if we're going to talk about the De Leon ship thing, right? We need the, the theory, but the, the sales do quite a bit. And that's what the musical element has been doing for these um, anti-government anti protests. It's, uh, it's sad, but it's important to remember that all of these people are the results of the revolution um and they don't act like they are uh but yeah yeah i mean it makes sense you're a product of your environment though and, and people ask you know why do people who come from china or who come from cuba or come from venezuela always say um that they hate their home country and a lot of time it's because they you know they do actually hate the revolution you know they're they're right wing they don't believe in socialism um but also it's because you know that that gets a lot of praise in the US you know if you badmouth your home country that there's all this propaganda about people like oh you know that's so great we have so much freedom in the US thank you for telling me about how horrible your country that the US is holding under embargo is um, so it makes sense. And there's there was a beautiful piece on consortium news that everyone should check out by um, I believe it was an African singer songwriter. And it was about the lack of music that has been made about the vaccine apartheid. Um, so the fact that the US and I can't remember the exact it's one of these international um, conglomerate organizations that a lot of different countries are a part of. Um, has has blocked uh, much of the global south from getting vaccines. Nope. We've talked about the, the the stopping of Venezuela from getting their vaccine and from Cuba from getting their uh, their ventilators. Um, so this musician was saying, why is there no music about this? Why is there no there are no protest music in opposition to this? Um, and, you know, I'm I like to play the guitar, but I'm not one to come out here and say, you know, start making music for for socialism musicians. But if you have those musical talents, like you said, you know, we need the we need that uh, morality that the sails of the ship that that push the ship and um yeah, uh, I just want to encourage people to use your different talents for um, for the right things, you know, identify identify causes of anti-imperialism and struggles for socialism and, and or things like the vaccine apartheid and, and then try and use your talents to to uh, to propagate that revolution in the U.S. that we want to see that's going to save all these countries and, and their people from being starved. Yeah, absolutely. That's the role of the, the proletarian artist. Um, and I, I mean, uh, Cuba, some pro-Cuban musicians countered the, uh, the, the, the main song that was done. It was called Pati Vida, uh, Homeland and Life, which is, it's, they're so dumb. That was something that Fidel <laughs> had already said, and they're trying to make it seem like it was the sort of thing that they're, they're, it's against the homeland and death, Patria Muerte Venceremos slogan. Uh, but the Cuban pro-Cuban musicians did this event, uh, this the sort of response song, and it wasn't any good, man. It wasn't <laughs> it wasn't good. So if if we're gonna do art, also make it good, because if yeah, you know, then they use that against you as well. <laughs> if you suck at, at art, uh, take back everything I just said. Yeah, <laughs> it couldn't have been any worse than uh, what was that song in the 80s when they donated a ton of money to Africa that just went to you are the world. We no, it was actually different than that. It was uh, uh, do they know it's Christmas in Africa? They're like, will the kids even get presents in Africa? It's all like these white, <laughs> super wealthy L.A. Uh, celebrities. And then all the money that they raised went to USAID and was sent to destabilize African countries. Um, <laughs> so at least the Cuban song was probably better than that. Yeah, well, I, I was hoping you weren't talking about the We Are the World because that's that's a banger. But <laughs> oh, have you seen the movie uh, The Tail Wags the Dog? Or no, it's called Wag the Dog. It's a no, I haven't. Uh, one of our old professors used to show it in his class. They make fun of that, uh, those songs, um, and they create a song um, encouraging the United States to invade this country in order to distract from a president's sex scandal that's going to lose the election. So there's art, you know, as parody, but that's literally what's going on here. You know, yeah. this, 
this song, oh, come together and overthrow the Cuban government, you know, listen to the music. Uh, it was literally parodied in a movie about U.S. imperialism called Wag the Dog. Yeah, so it's, that's propaganda, man. That's how it works. Uh, it, it, ideas always have to be embodied in something. It has to be embodied in people and institutions. So um, that's what people are fed in Hollywood and, and their schools um, and the media. Um, so it's, it's our task right now. I think the, the most important task that we have today, tomorrow, as long as this, these protests continue to happen, is to counter these imperialist narratives and to continue pushing for the Biden administration to go back to the sort of conduct that, uh, that Obama had with Cuba. Um, I think that's one of the few things that, that Obama did right, right? He lifted the blockade. So um, I, I don't see why Biden wouldn't if we apply the, the force that's needed. Um, or maybe we should be applying a f the force to the Pope because that's how he got, he's the one that got Obama to do it. So um, I don't know, maybe our Catholic comrades out there should, should step up. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to, uh, to attack the Dems for not lifting the blockade because that's the minimum that they, yeah. they could have done. Yeah, and I actually, I have a, a Catholic friend who was right away a Catholic comrade who was on top of this, you know, saying this is, you know, the Cuban people are defending the revolution um, against the U.S. back color revolution coming out against the Miami protests. And I know we've been hard on a lot of socialists and a lot of leftists during this podcast uh, because it's frustrating some of this pro-imperialist rhetoric we've seen. But I've also been pleasantly surprised, one, with people using the the information that you put out there, Carlos, um, uh, and sharing that around. But then also people who I know uh, watch our stuff and who got into socialism because of us immediately were posting stuff on TikTok. This is a color revolution. This is U.S. backed. These Miami protests are right wing. So so that made me really proud of our project and really proud um, of a lot of a lot of you, honestly. So uh, so, yeah, yeah, that was that was a, a brighter note, little silver lining to this whole situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think we can wrap it up. Um, I would just say if there's any opposition people watching um, the real like the real test of how good of an anti-communist you are is how much you can promote the end of the blockade, right? <laughs> if, if you're an anti-communist, have faith in your ideology, right? Have faith that communism will fall once you lift the blockade, right? Um, that might be a sinister approach, but I, I think it might work. It's like they, uh, one of the things that, <laughs> one of the things that I heard during the pandemic was, uh, um, it was uh, this uh, gay TikToker, he was saying, um, we should tell the people that don't want to wear a mask that that's like a, a, a sort of social code word for, you know, I, I'm gay or something like that. <laughs> so try to work backwards so that you can trick them into supporting what, what you're supporting. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was the way to get Republicans. Tell Republicans yeah. that if you don't wear a mask, that's saying you're gay. Yeah, yeah. reverse psychology. That's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So th thank you to everyone for watching. Um, I, we were a bit disorganized, but it's uh, we're very passionate. I'm very passionate about this issue because you know I was born in Cuba. So um, yeah, I, I I feel like we should mention it, like we've been doing for the last ten podcasts. That the journal is out soon, <laughs> like within the next few days. We promise. Yes. Yep. It'll be out soon um yeah we'll be we'll be cooking up more content i've been trying to stream on twitch more but who knows we'll see um yeah but more podcasts hopefully coming soon and yeah thank you all for watching um thank you for your solidarity um solidarity with cuba and the revolution uh peace out we'll see you later